0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, May 1st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temen. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the Navy has bold ideas for a brand new museum. Plus, the Energy Department installs the latest of its fleet of supercomputers those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, to be or not to be. No, I'm not being Shakespeare. The question is to be or not to be in the office. That's the question on the minds of many federal employees after the White House updated guidance around federal telework. A Federal News Network survey found that many feds either think they'll have to start going back to work more often in the office Many others, though, are not so sure. Here to discuss the details of the latest FNN survey, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. All right, Drew, you did a pretty big survey here. First of all, how many people responded?
2: We got 4,700 responses, Tom, and that is a huge number. If you compare it to the survey we did last year, around this time last year, we had about 3,000 responses.
3: All
1: right, so give us some of the results. What are people saying here?
2: It is kind of difficult to say across the board that there's one clear takeaway here, but when asked if if federal employees think that return-to-office plans will change based on the OMB memo, 40% say yes, they think an increase in in in-office work is coming. 20% say no, they don't think things will change very much. And another 40% say they really just don't know. And I think that is kind of the through line here. A lot of people are unsure about what this memo is really going to mean, what their agency leadership is going to do about it, and you know how, how soon and when things are going to change here.
1: Yes, that uh, memo, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes, though, is first to understand what it's going to do, you have to be able to decipher it. And that itself, I think, takes a PhD in gobbledygook. Anyway, that's just me saying that. And Generally, feds feel how about teleworking, did the survey show?
2: Federal employees are generally really positive about telework. They think that it makes them more productive. They say it helps them meet agency mission a lot more effectively. And they think that you know it shouldn't really be a one-size-fits-all approach to telework. Of course, we know that not every federal employee, not every government agency can have complete telework or complete remote work. But federal employees say that you know, continue using telework where it makes sense. And it's something that they're really largely in favor of. That's something that has been very, very consistent for for years.
1: Right. The people I've spoken with that were not teleworking, that have been teleworking because they had to when the disease came around and has receded, they don't necessarily want 100% telework. They like the option to go to the office, but it seems to be like a three days home tele. And two days in the office seems to be kind of what people have settled into and are pretty happy with it.
2: That That is generally the trend. And I think where the concern is coming from is that a lot of federal employees feel that, you know, the ones who feel that telework might be decreasing and in-office work might be increasing in response to the OMB guidance, that makes them concerned and they don't really want to be coming back into the office more often. Of course, that's not everyone. But roughly two-thirds of our survey respondents said that they would consider or would look for a new job if their agency increased in office work.
1: Right. People say that, but I'm not so sure. And about agency's leadership approach to telework, I mean, that's there is policy setting that has to happen. It's kind of been ad hoc at this point. How do the feds in the survey view their agency's leadership approach?
2: One of our questions asked basically on a 0 to 100 scale, how does your agency view telework, and they got what I would call a D- minus rating. They got a 65 out of 100 just as an average for how agency leaders are looking at telework. And I think that a lot of federal employees, at least in the survey and in the responses, think that you know some agency leaders may be becoming a little bit less telework-friendly as time is going on, and that is a A remaining concern for them.
1: And the reason for that is so hard to tell. I mean, the people that are looking that are not leadership often think it's, well, they're just a dinosaur that if you can't count the noses, you can't tell the work is being done. They want to see the heads in the cubicles and etc. Maybe a more enlightened view is they just don't know. And they're being held responsible for the output of the agency. And they're unsure of what the effect of telework might be. Although the evidence over the past three years is relative to the three years prior you really can't tell the difference.
2: That's right and I think that federal employees at least according to the survey again are saying that pro- productivity is actually increased because of telework and you know that's something that's a view shared by federal employees, a lot of leaders, federal union leaders and a lot of lawmakers as well, at least on the democratic side. So, you know, that that is generally the the viewpoint at least from The survey results here.
1: And what telework policy do the survey respondents say they think is best?
2: They like it how it is. (laughs) They say that it really shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all approach. It should be based on what is the actual function of your position, what makes sense for you. If you're just going to be going into the office and sitting on Teams calls, sitting in Zoom meetings, I think federal employees generally don't see the value in coming to the office just for that.
1: Sure. Yes, that's right. If so many people are always tele... a certain percentage, let's say, are always telecommuting or teleworking, then wherever you are, you're going to be on Teams, Zoom, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Right. It's, It's... I think that's kind of a driving factor here is, you know, it's, again, depends on the function of the position.
1: Sure. And let's get to that Office of Management and Budget memo. It was 19 pages. I... Cut it and pasted it, because it was a PDF, of course, into Word and found it was more than 7,800 words, all to tell management to update their telework policy. So, (laughs) what have you been hearing about it?
2: There has been quite a range of response to the memo, Tom, and I think that generally it's creating more questions than it is answers right now. A lot of federal employees think that, as the survey results show, that telework will decrease. Another half says telework will not decrease. So I think there there's just a lot of questions around what it actually says. But if you look into the memo and the actual language of it, it says essentially agency managers should look for ways to increase in-office work while still maintaining the flexibility of telework. So it is a bit of a middle-of-the-road approach.
1: And there was that reference to community needs, And I think that was sort of a code for the fact that there's a lot of pressure from state and local level officials, especially in the cities that have large federal presences that are facing high office occupancy rates and harm, in their opinion anyway, to the restaurant business and so on, that feds are somehow under obligation to be in their offices to support the city economies. And a lot of feds are pretty vehement. Hey, that's not my job. My job is my job.
2: Right. I think that that pressure is coming down a lot on the Biden administration here. And it's coming from a lot of lawmakers as well. A couple months ago, we saw the Show Up Act pass the House, and that's one that would, if it was enacted, would return federal employees to pre-pandemic telework. So there is a lot of conversation and talk and concern around this topic, something that is making federal employees feel uncertain, feel nervous about changes when they are saying that they feel happy where they are. Sure. And, you know, I think one driving factor is just the commute in in the city as well.
1: Yes, uh, I think, right. I don't think it's the office so much as the commute. As a, as I, I have an aversion to commute after 45 years of it. I've had jobs as close as one block from where I was living to, you know, 30 miles. <laughs> one block beats 30 miles, let me tell you, A 14-step staircase in a four-bedroom colonial, that's even closer. And you've also been getting hints that what OMB is saying in privately, without the memo, is we want people back more.
2: That is something I have heard from a couple different sources. Apparently, OMB in the memo says that it is, you know, back and forth and there should be kind of a mix of both. But there are a couple reports that apparently in conversations with agency leadership – Maybe they're saying, okay, you know, you should actually bring people back to the office more. Okay.
1: And then there is the in-office people. There are those that like to work in the office, that want to be there, that want to be around the colleagues and the cubes and the coffee. Hey, a new expression, C-cubed, coffee, colleagues, and cubicles. They have ideas on what might make in-office itself more pleasant or productive.
2: There were a couple of different ideas thrown around from the survey respondents. They talked about collaborative meetings, so sometimes in-person meetings can be beneficial when you're talking with a whole team. They also talked about flexibility with work hours. But really, the biggest takeaway here is that when asked, federal employees said actually nothing would make an office work more productive or more pleasant. A lot of people are saying No, I just want to continue teleworking and just continue how things have been going.
1: (laughs) Keep your foosball table, right? Exactly. (laughs) And your cafe latte maker. So what comes next? Agencies have to do this analysis because at the end of this memo, there were a lot of deadlines going out to 150 days.
2: Yep, there's a lot of deadlines. The first one coming up is just a couple of weeks away, about mid-May. We'll see agencies submit their initial work environment plans. These are going to look at different factors or ways to measure the productivity of an agency and after that we'll see them present those plans to OMB throughout the summer and it's going to be a an ongoing change ongoing updates as as they measure changes in productivity.
1: And listen, OMB doesn't know all the data, so you can always make it up to support what it is you want to do with your agency. Not advising that, but I think it's a strategy a few people might take. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her full report on that survey at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Energy Department installs the latest of its fleet of supercomputers. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. It's called Kestrel, but it's not a falcon catching mice. It's the newest Energy Department supercomputer. Kestrel just arrived at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden, Colorado. Here with what it will do and some of its amazing statistics, Program Manager Kristen Munch. Ms. Munch, good to have you on. Good morning. So tell us about Kestrel. First of all, who built it? Because these things are made from standard types of components, just a whole lot of them interconnected in a unique way. Tell us about the architecture of this computer.
4: Kestrel is being built by Hewlett Packard Enterprises, and it is NREL's third generation HPC system. But it's actually a pretty big step up for us. So we're going from an eight petaflop system on Eagle to a 44 petaflop system on Kestrel, kind of like a five and a half times increase in computing capability for us.
1: And you're not shutting off the old one. That'll still operate?
4: It'll operate for a little while to enable a transition.
1: Got it. So there's no but, way of yeah. combining eight plus 44 permanently and then you've got 56 petaflops. That yeah, just doesn't work know, that way.
4: Usually they take up so much room that you kind of have to get the other one out of there.
1: And kind of ironically, this is for the energy department. You're going to be looking, and we'll get into the mission in a moment, of renewable energy. Yet, how do you power a thing like this?
4: Well, we actually had to do a power upgrade into our data center for this. So we're going to be going up to about a a 7.5 megawatt data center. So we're adding about 4 megawatts to our data center in order to power Kestrel. But we still have a little bit of room left there, so we're not using that full 7.5 megawatts.
1: All right. Let's talk about why Kestrel. What are the big challenges that the lab is working on right now?
4: So the research that is done on Kestrel, the thing that's unique about Kestrel is that it is the computing facility dedicated to the EERE mission, the Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy Office. The research that's done on there is researchers from actually almost all of the national labs, including NREL, industry and academia users are on there. They do everything from fundamental material science work for next generation solar cells, carbon neutral fuels, They do forecasting of solar and wind resources. They simulate offshore wind farms to try to figure out how to get the best performance out of them. And another big thing they do is they run hundreds or even thousands of scenarios of the future grid to kind of explore options of how to get to a renewable future on our power sector.
1: That's really a big one, too, isn't it? Because I think people have the sense that the grid is getting increasingly fragile. And you have brownouts and blackouts, and we didn't think of ourselves as a third-world country. And so I guess one of the challenges is to stay not a third-world country in terms of power.
4: Exactly. So it's not only, like, what renewable sources you add to the grid, it's how you do it and when and how do you make the grid resilient. Grid resiliency,
1: though, is important even with the power mix that we have now. Exactly. And how does this operate for all of these different parties that wish to access the computer? It's a time-sharing schedule type of basis?
4: Exactly. That's actually a really good question because it's kind of timely. We have our annual call going out in just a couple weeks on May 10th. So what happens is NREL, on behalf of EERE, runs an annual open call every spring, and people apply. They'll apply for getting time on Kestrel this next year, and they're given time through EERE approval process, and their time starts on October 1st for one year. So it's the fiscal year.
1: Got it. And what is a typical time unit for a machine like this? I mean, a problem I could come up with would take about one-tenth of one petaflop. And it would be over in, <laughs> in four seconds. Do some of these things take all night or maybe a whole day to run type of a measure?
4: Oh, yes, even longer than that. So we'll have jobs on the supercomputer that can run for several weeks even. And one of the big things about the architecture is it has to be capable of running these jobs for a very long time across many, many nodes of compute nodes and storing that data instantaneously to our parallel storage system. So yeah, we have jobs that run a very long time, but we also have jobs that are shorter, but they run thousands or even millions of them.
1: So therefore, the people that are developing the programs that will run on it, the applications have to do a lot of error correction and recovery because you don't want the thing hanging up in the middle of the night. And it's a day later till someone realizes it's hung up.
4: Yeah, we have lots of different programs in place that can troubleshoot things like that. We also have, you know, a team of computational experts that are available to help with that at NREL. So we get involved with some of our users' codes, making sure they're running efficiently and they don't have any problems.
1: We're speaking with Kristen Munch. She's Laboratory Program Manager for Advanced Computing at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Colorado. And is this a fee-for-service type of thing that is, is Kestrel paying for itself by fees from the users.
4: Actually, Kestrel is purchased by EERE in order to enable EERE's research. So the researchers themselves don't have to pay to use Kestrel.
1: Wow. So it's all funded by the government. You just have to have a worthy reason to be able to use Kestrel.
4: Exactly. Very similar to the other supercomputers at the other national labs.
1: All right. And what's the status of the machine now? Is it installed and debugged? And how do you know it's ready to switch on?
4: So it just arrived about a month ago. So we're still in the middle of kind of bringing it up, powering it on, making sure all the components are working like they should. We'll start a phase called acceptance testing in the next couple of weeks, probably, and that lasts for a few months. So we'll bring Kestrel up officially sometime this summer. That's the first phase of Kestrel with the CPU nodes. We also have a second phase where we're adding GPU nodes later in the fall.
1: And do you have certain programs that you know what the outcome should be and how long it should take? as kind of indicators to run to test it with.
4: Yes, we actually have a whole benchmarking team that's running very specific benchmarks that represent all the codes that our users run on Kestrel to make sure everything's working
1: properly. And because it's made of so many, I guess, racks, and each rack has lots of blades in it and so on, they fail from time to time. So there must be a staff around all the time ready to pop in a new blade or a whole new rack unit if necessary.
4: Yes, exactly. So our computational science center has an operations team that manages most of that. But we also have maintenance contracts with the vendors. And so they can send people in for certain types of issues, too, as needed.
1: And by the way, how big is Kestrel? Is it like the size of a microbus or is it the size of a barn or what? (laughs) What kind of square footage does it take?
4: It's taking up about 2,500 square feet or so. It's about a quarter of our data center. It's about, if you can picture compute racks in a data center, it's three rows of compute racks. So a CPU row, a storage row, and a GPU row.
1: And a generation ago, the same power would have been 10 times as big, probably.
4: One generation ago, yeah, it probably took about four rows Really, the the increase in compute capability is not really the number of nodes anymore. You kind of still need the same number of nodes, but they're all much more powerful because of the processor technology.
1: Yeah, it's down to the chips. Density really is the big difference. Right. And do people have to make sure that the programs they develop for it conform to the way in which it can be used the most efficiently? That is to say, you know, just to be uh, as a non-computer scientist, I would say, You don't want to send a floating point type of problem down to a integer type of computer.
4: (laughs) Right. So most of our codes have already been running on Eagle and even the generation before. So it's really a matter of making sure the codes run and are compiled for these particular processors. And we do get a lot of help from the actual processor vendors, too, to make sure that happens. So hopefully there's not as much work on the users running the codes And, you know, we're there to help them if there are any issues.
1: And federal offices often get new things, maybe new furniture, maybe a new copier. This is more like a big deal, isn't it? Almost as if the Air Force was getting a new bomber, correct?
4: Yeah, exactly. It's a big investment. And EERE is kind of making that investment in making sure that we have some dedicated compute resources to help us solve these problems.
1: By the way, is battery technology, that seems to be the other grand challenge here besides the grid, but battery technology is key to almost everything in renewable for practical application. That's part of the problem set?
4: Yep. We do have people who work on battery technologies from the vehicle's office.
1: Wow. So when people at uh, cookouts and stuff out there in Golden, Colorado have problems with their updates and stuff, do they come to you because they know you've got the biggest computer in the state? (laughs)
4: <laughs> they can. They definitely can do that. We huh. do have a lot of local universities that use the computer.
1: But I mean, do they ask Kristen, hey, I'm having trouble <laughs> with this software. If you can do things on Kestrel, you can probably fix my Mac.
4: They might now. <laughs> now that I'm talking to you, I don't know.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll get it out there and make sure they know where to turn. <laughs> Kristen Munch is Laboratory Program Manager for Advanced Computing at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, Golden, Colorado. Thanks so much for joining me.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information about Kestrel at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Run the Federal Drive on your device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Senate is alone on Capitol Hill this week as budget debates roll on. But first, the Navy has bold ideas for a brand new museum. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Five architectural firms are now at work on proposals for a brand new museum for the Navy. For why the Navy will build a new museum and its history and its vision for that new facility, we turn to the director of the Naval History and Heritage Command, retired Rear Admiral Samuel Cox. Admiral Cox, good to have you on.
3: Uh, Good morning. Pleased to be here. Good to have you in studio here. And let's begin at the beginning. Why a new museum for the Navy? Well, two primary reasons. One, we already have a fantastic museum, but it's in a building that was never intended to be one. It's an old gun factory, so the environment is not good for the artifacts. The primary reason, though, is because of the security on the Navy Yard. It's very difficult for the American people to get in, so we're not meeting our mission of telling the story of the U.S. Navy to the American public.
1: Yeah, I've been to the Navy Yard. It's easy to get out, but pretty hard to get in down there near the ballpark in Washington, D.C. So where will the new facility be located?
3: The new museum will be right outside the Navy Yard, about a six-minute walk from the uh, Navy Yard metro stop. All right. And as you face the Navy Yard, to the left or the right? If you're looking south from M Street, it'll be to the right. Okay. so or, yeah, yeah, if you're looking towards Anacostia River. Yeah, and so you're going to an area that is already pretty heavily trafficked relative to years ago down at that part of D.C. That's correct. It's one of the hottest neighborhoods in D.C., and that's one reason why multiple studies identified that spot as being the best spot in the entire United States for this museum. Part of it is because of the traffic that we'll get, and that adds to the mission of what we're trying to
1: accomplish. Sure, and at lunchtime, the staff can walk over to the Salt Line, you know, and have a Narragansett. Probably they don't do that during lunch. Absolutely,
3: and the civilians, the people, can come into our cafe and gift shop and help defray the cost of operating the museum.
1: And you narrowed 37 possible firms down to five that are in competition for the design of this building. One of them I noticed was Frank Gehry and Associates. He's known for really avant-garde, off-the-wall, so to speak, types of buildings. So fair to say the Navy is going bold on this one?
3: Well, we hope. At some point, the uh, artist is going to collide with the engineer, and the building will have to be built to Navy force protection standards, because safety of the public in there will be our number one priority. But this was called an artistic ideas competition it's not the actual final design competition that'll come in later after the foundation raises money to do it so it could be one of these five firms or it could be someone else who actually gets the contract if you will to build it we were pleased i mean these were high-end global incredibly accomplished firms that expressed an interest in doing this which was quite gratifying
1: Yeah, federal projects are actually attractive to architectural firms because over the years, the federal government has done some leading architecture, believe it or not, you know, for the general public, often doesn't realize that. And just a question on the financing, what is the estimated cost of this? And is there any appropriated funds or is it all private fundraising?
3: The estimated cost over the course of the museum, which will be built in phases, so not all at once, but, you know, a high-end museum in Washington, D.C. area is going to cost $400 million and upwards. This will not be taxpayer dollars that build the museum, this will be raised by a foundation that's set up specifically to do that. Now, after it's built, the Navy will staff and operate the museum like I do now with the current museums, uh, and the Navy will maintain the museum. But the foundation will also continue to raise money via the gift shop, parking, things like that. So they'll be able to continue to defray the operating costs of the museum.
1: We're speaking with retired Rear Admiral Samuel Cox. He's director of the Naval History and Heritage Command. And just briefly, you are a retired officer, of course, and now you are a senior executive service employee, correct? That's correct. Uh, At the Heritage Command. Give us the quick overview of the History and Heritage Command.
3: Well, within the United States Navy, we took everything that was history-related and combined it into one actual command. It's a Navy command And having a civilian like me in charge of a Navy command is pretty unique, but we're responsible for the Navy's official history programs, the operational archives, library, the Navy's collection of art, photographs, rare books, weapons, 1100 display aircraft that are around the country and kind of unique is the federal executive agent for the sunken military craft act so sure. i'm responsible for 3000 us navy shipwrecks and 14000 aircraft wrecks that we try to keep from being unauthorized pilfered
1: right they are sacred sites exactly. really, for the yes. nation yes and with respect to what you mentioned as some of the artifacts clearly everything the navy has in its stores will not fit in any museum so what will be the selection criteria, and what are some of the unique requirements for a naval museum versus, say, where you would hang the Mona Lisa?
3: Well, we still have much of the same issues that any other museum would have. You need a very high tolerance for environment, humidity, temperature, things like that, in order to preserve artifacts over the long term. We also have a process where we rotate artifacts. You know, Some will last forever, or practically. Others are very fragile, And if you keep them on display too long, you'll actually severely degrade the artifact. So there's a science that goes into how to do this. Certainly the selection criteria for artifacts, I have about 500,000 within our main collection, and we have 10 other museums, most fairly small affairs, but we have quite a few artifacts to choose from. And we'll be looking for those that tell The most profound story about the history of the United States Navy, try to find those that have a personal connection because people connect to other people. And rather than just having, hey, here's a thing, here's a story that goes with it and a person that goes with it that is compelling.
1: And some of these artifacts are quite large. I think I read in one of the releases the top part of a submarine, the part that sticks
3: up. That's great. The sail, actually, sail, which has the, the bridge, uh, and that's the part that sticks up above the water. And it's the sail of the USS Honolulu, which happened to be the command for— Two officers who became chief of naval operations and another uh, Cecil Haney with African-American four star. So it was very successful at producing uh, admirals, uh, you know, coming out of that particular boat. All right. So a lot of people might
1: want to climb in there while they're going through. And do you sense that as a smaller percentage of the population actually will have served in the military in some ironic way that increases the interest in these types of museums?
3: I think there's kind of a cyclical thing going on here, kind of a renewed interest, for example, in, in World War II, where, you know, the grandchildren of those who served in that war asked their parents, well, what would grandpa do? And, and they don't know because that generation tended not to talk. And now they're going to museums, they're reading our books and whatnot and, and learning about what happened before. Any other interesting artifacts that we can look forward to, by the way, that will be definitely in there? It's hard for me to choose. There'll be many. We'll have a Dauntless dive bomber. You wonder, well, why an airplane? It's like, well, you know, you command the sea by commanding the air over the sea. And the Dauntless was the aircraft that turned the tide of World War II at the Battle of Midway. At great cost, uh, these were aviators at a time when the, the nation was not ready for war. And they paid with their lives in order to stop the Japanese advance, but they did. Uh, so there 's you know a credible story about valor and also a preparedness you know like don 't be caught like that again that goes with that particular artifact and what are our timelines here? When would you like to see the doors open? We would like to do a groundbreaking ceremony for the u s navy 's two hundred and fiftieth birthday in twenty twenty five that 'll be dependent on how fast the foundation can raise the money it 's a heavy lift that 's an aspirational goal we 'll see if we make it.
1: And by the way, any Marine Corps exhibits in there because they have their own facility looming over Route 95?
3: They have their own. Uh, However, you know, the entire history of the U.S. Navy and the Marine Corps has been very closely interwoven. So uh, we have the fighting top of the USS Constitution, which was a frigate during the, the War of 1812. And it was Marines on that fighting top with their rifles shooting down at the other ship. And then throughout World War II, you know, many of our operations were amphibious in nature. So it'll be focused on the Navy putting the Marines ashore as opposed to what the Marines did ashore. But there's a close relationship there. All right.
1: We'll look forward to it. Retired Rear Admiral Samuel Cox is director of the Naval History and Heritage Command. Thanks so much for joining me.
3: It's pleasure. Thank you
1: and we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive aboard with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Senate is alone on Capitol Hill this week as budget debates rolled on. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The House is in recess this week, but the Senate will hear more budget testimony and deal with judicial nominees. We get the outlook from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. I guess I'm a little surprised. I mean, I haven't looked at the schedule lately, but after dropping something of a bomb in the House barely passed debt ceiling budget negotiation type of bill, they wouldn't kind of stick around to push it now that the Senate, I guess, in theory has to deal with it.
5: That's true. I mean, they made sure they got this done before they took this week off because they wanted to have something in the hopper by the end of April. This was a long-scheduled recess week. There's some travel that members are doing, including Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker, going to Israel and addressing the Knesset they're planning to at the very least. So they did pass that. As you noted, it was bare 217 to 215, but bare is still passed. And now that's waiting for the Senate to do something and also for President Biden, perhaps, to get involved in negotiations or talks with people on Capitol Hill.
1: Right, because the President president has said he's not going to meet with Kevin McCarthy, but on the other hand, even some of the papers that are, you might say, in the Democratic column somewhat editorially are urging this to happen
5: right. I mean, the president has said he'll talk to Kevin McCarthy, just not about the debt limit, right? His position has been (laughs) increase the debt limit, deal with it. I'm not going to talk about anything else around that subject. So at some point, they're going to have to talk, right? Joe Manchin, the Senate Democrat from West Virginia, has encouraged talks to go on, and he's up for reelection next year. Tough race. I think he wants to be seen as pushing this along and coming to resolution. It was really important for the House Republicans to get behind a plan, pass it, and then have this as their negotiating stake in the ground. The coverage leading into that vote is if it hadn't been successful, it would have been disastrous for Kevin McCarthy. I think the opposite is true now. Now now that he's passed it, he has a position, his conference is behind it. It gives him a strengthened hand in these talks. So it remains to be seen what the Democrats are going to offer in return other than what they said to date, which is that they want to increase the debt limit. It's important to pay the bills that we've already obligated ourselves to and and let's just get it done. So um, a little bit of time left to go on this. The X date is still in the future, but not too much time given everything else that has to Happen as
1: well. Yeah, the best estimate now is sometime early summer to maybe midsummer, right?
5: That's right. And it depends on how, you know, the cash flow of the government is, um, the revenues that continue to maybe trickle in from tax season and and other payments that are due maybe in June. So a lot depends on just the bookkeeping and the churn of cash in the federal government.
1: Right. And where they can go ransacking for money that they'll have to pay back to one account. What a way to run a coffee shop. All right. Still some Senate side budget hearings, though. That's still almost a pro forma thing. But they are looking at the submissions from the administration on behalf of the agencies still.
5: That's right. They're still going through those at the cabinet, even sub-cabinet level. Um, one of the big ones this week will be Deb Holland, the Interior Secretary, going to the Senate Energy Panel. Um, but, you know, these are beginning to wind down. They're still going through these discussions, it is a chance for committees, both appropriators and authorizers, to take a deeper dive into what was sent to them by the administration. But really what we're getting closer and closer to is actually writing the spending bills and the defense policy bill that will do something with this budget request that was sent up by the White House. So we're getting near the end here. Some of these are pretty routine. Some of them still have their flashpoints if members want to ask a tough question or hold whoever's in front of them to account on that particular day. But you know, this is getting near the tail end of the normal spring season for this.
1: But Is there a connection between all of that debt ceiling talk because the Republicans are looking for cuts in return for, I guess, agreeing to raise the debt ceiling, but then these budget hearings have been going on and there were a bunch in the House and now there's winding down in the Senate, as you tell us. Is there any connection between those two because the budget they're talking about cutting is what they're examining in the hearings?
5: That's right. I mean, one of the ideas in this House Republican plan is to reduce spending to fiscal 2022 levels um, when you write the bills for fiscal 2024. I think that's, you know, more than $100 billion cut compared to what they just passed um, in in last year's omnibus. So overall, the spending will have to come down and you'll have to budget within that if that is the level that the two sides agree to. Now, there's going to be pressure in the Senate to push that up and not agree to that. But I think when it comes to writing the spending bills, you have to live within your means. Defense is obviously a hard thing to cut and Republicans are going to push to maintain or even grow spending there to keep pace with inflation. So some of these discretionary increases that were sought by the administration are going to fall on some deaf ears when it comes to Congress. So there's a long way to go here, but you can write a bill that has your priorities in it and then negotiate it along the way.
1: We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government, and the Supreme Court ethics kerfuffle going on, thanks to some reporting from different sources. What's going to happen with that? Is that going to take up time and anything going to come of it, do you think?
5: That remains to be seen. It's a separation of power issues keeps getting raised, right? The legislative branch trying to tell the judicial branch what to do. Although, you know, that's not a perfect blank line because the legislative branch does have some power in our system of checks and balances. But what we may see that what we're supposed to see this week is a hearing held by Dick Durbin and the Senate Judiciary Committee looking at Supreme Court ethics. The big witness he wanted was Chief Justice John Roberts, who declined to attend, saying there wasn't precedent and that he wouldn't show up, basically. The hearing is still supposed to go on. They're still going to discuss this. There's people who have talked about using the eventual appropriations bill for the judiciary, which is part of the financial services spending bill, to maybe require a code of ethics there. So I think this discussion is going to go on. People are obviously upset about the news reports that you referenced and really want some sort of written down code for the Supreme Court that they can see, which they say they haven't, even though the Supreme Court says they do have a code that they're abiding by.
1: Veterans Affairs is always an active area for legislation year in, year out, mostly in a bipartisan way. And we saw some gambits on the electronic health record project and a few other items, cannabis, anything going to happen in the near term there, do you think?
5: Well, there was a vote last week that fell short of the 60 senators needed. It was, I think, 57 that said yes. And actually, Chuck Schumer was a yes, but changed his vote to no to make it easier to go back to this. That bill was, at its heart, a cannabis research bill that they then were going to expand to have some home and community health-based provisions in it. And then what really seemed to hold it back, though, was concern from Republicans that they wouldn't have a chance to offer their amendments. I think there could be a path forward on this bill. And there is a lot of interest, as you say, in veterans legislation, especially in May around Memorial Day and November. Around Veterans Day. So I think we'll see more there. On the electronic health records issue, John Tester and Patty Murray had introduced a bill, I think, back in March to try to overhaul that system. John Tester, who's the chair of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, claimed some credit a couple weeks ago when the Veterans Affairs Department said they're going to reset the program and and try to get things rolling, and he even tied that back to his bill. So I think that is going to be a closely watched thing going into the spending season, and there will be some action on veterans legislation. Maybe the less controversial stuff's always easier, and some of these other things could be a little more fraud as they try to do them.
1: Well, the EHR system itself keeps obliging this debate by failing and crashing and not operating where it's supposed to. So That still goes on. So I guess maybe the hearings and the debate will still go on. And with respect to Health and Human Services, the HELP bill on drug pricing, that's something Bernie Sanders and Bill Cassidy worked out?
5: Yeah, they don't seem like natural partners, but they're the chair and the ranking member of that committee and both care a lot about health issues. And so they've come to an agreement on a package of drug pricing bills, including reining in, as they see it, pharmacy benefit managers. You've probably seen a lot of those ads in the Washington, D.C. area when you You turn on TV or watch streaming. I've seen those ads and
1: what they claim in those ads are kind of hard to believe. You know, this seven dollar pill was charged five thousand. You just wonder, you know, if it's true
5: ads are meant to draw attention to themselves, right? That's the thing with those. So this is a package of bills that probably move on a bipartisan basis, given the fact that the chair and the ranking member have worked this out. Um, that would then head to the floor where I, I think people would like a win on a bipartisan basis on something like that. Um, so that's something to watch as it's moving forward. And, you know, these narrowly divided chambers, anything that has that bipartisan sure. imprimatur behind it, really, you have to watch.
1: All right. So maybe the next ad we'll see is 51% of doctors recommend camels. <laughs> Anyway, Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Pentagon IT leaders have high hopes they can use DOD's new joint war fighting cloud capability contract to help retire decades of technical debt across the department's business systems. Luckily, using cloud technologies for DOD business systems, it's no pie-in-the-sky idea. You can already find examples of big systems that have moved to the cloud or were built there to begin with. Christine Lemaire is the program manager for Naval Applications and Business Services. Rob Porter is the acting product director for the Army's General Fund Enterprise Business System. They spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about what they've learned about business systems in the cloud.
6: In 2020, we were on our way already to move to the cloud as as directed by the Army and the DoD, but we took an opportunity and and, and, an opportunity with funding to move a little bit more rapidly. So based on some direction and some funding um, availability, we moved about seven months sooner. We accelerated the July of 2020, completing our uh, cloud production. Uh, My system is the general fund enterprise business system. It is an SAP-based technology, so it's an enterprise resource planning technology, and it accounts for the Army's general fund um, funding across the year. We account for about $250 billion a year in the Army's general funds.
7: And, and tell us a bit about, you, you said you accelerated your journey to the cloud. What, from the start, made GFEBS look like an attractive candidate for a cloud migration versus just leaving it in its existing environment?
6: Yeah, so we were in a pilot already to move to the cloud. And like I said, there was some opportunity with some cloud funds available, but the real big um, kind of move for us with the technical debt that we had assumed with the system, we were a little bit behind on some cyber um, activities that we wanted to shore up, as well as some infrastructure activities we had on our on-prem environments. And moving to the cloud allowed us to kind of clear up a lot of that and improve our cyber posture, as well as our ability to kind of um, update our technical infrastructure to operate, uh, to maximize the operations we had.
7: Christina, I want to get you in here to introduce folks a, a bit to your portfolio. You, you own several systems, including one called Ardeus, which to the best of my knowledge was the first DoD system to be built cloud natively. There may be others I don't know about, but but tell us a bit about your portfolio and how you think about getting into the cloud with all your systems.
0: So, so I think for, you know, the Navy, we, and, and specifically my, my program, we had to rapidly scale uh, to meet dynamic user demand. Um, when, when, when they said cloud, we were on board. Um, but, but also there was a real opportunity there for, to get contemporary hardware. Uh, So the Navy um, was committed to to being all in transforming operations and and those business processes uh, to leverage those cloud technologies. Um, Some of the operational advantages that we've seen uh, to to warfighting with cloud technologies vice some of our older legacy client-server models are are far-reaching, and and they include the ability to use micro-web services across the enterprise and to store authoritative data uh, once and have them reused uh, by many, so it reduces some of that data footprint that is becoming an issue across not just the government but industry and we could reuse them into, into different systems for that you know, data integrity and in the, in the context required for speed and accuracy in, in some of our decision-making. Uh, specifically to our days, we migrated uh, due to a, a Navy mandate. McBoss was the only you know, platform as a service solution uh, that made, that met that Navy's information impact level there's several, there's four. We, we actually now have, have the first AWS ATO um, for an IL-6 environment at, at the time of our day's inception. Um, so, so that was the main driver for us in, in that space.
7: Rob, um, similar benefits on, on the Army side in, in terms of what Christine talked about? I saw you nodding when she talked about the, the, <laughs> the, the niceness of micro services, et cetera.
6: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've experienced and had some experience with them before on, on previous efforts, but with ours, it's, it's slightly different being the, an enterprise kind of system. One of the big um, things that we've been looking at is optimizing our performance, not just with the cloud with scalability, but with the actual like individual VMs that we've had. So we've upgraded twice since we moved into the cloud in 2020 and optimized both from a per- performance perspective as well as a cost perspective. So we've used some of those services as well, but being a larger system, we have to kind of lock a lot of things down. So those web services are great and we've looked at using them, but haven't been as probably as, as beneficial to us as they have been on the Navy side.
7: A couple upgrades since 2020, that's, um, that's a faster pace than I usually expect DOD business systems to be modernized. I mean, say a bit about that, compare that that speed to what you could have done in a traditional on-prem environment.
6: Yeah. So I mean, our on-prem environment, especially for us within the acquisition community, we would have to plan that out a couple years in advance, make sure that we get the server sizes that we wanted, the types and all the specs that we would have. Um, We moved into the cloud in in July of 2020, went through our first year in close and year in close for us being a financial system is, is a pretty arduous process and it takes quite a while. It's probably three or four weeks of effort, big, big jobs running. Um, Directly after that, we, we looked at optimizing. We went through kind of a well-architected review with our service provider, and we found out that we could, you know, change our VMs to a different type and optimize our performance. So we did it in the fall of 2020. Um, Recently, we've just gone through that same review and in, in the later version, we've been able to kind of get up to that same performance level while actually lowering our cost per, per use um, on that. So it's been a great benefit to us as far as keeping those costs down in the cloud.
7: Christine, say a bit from your perspective on, on speed of, of upgrade. And, and as I understand it, actually, you've actually started to see some experience with incredibly frequent code releases on at least some of your programs
0: uh some of my programs but I, but for our days uh, I will say cuz cuz I just had my first all hands uh last month we hit our 100th deployment on our, our days we are we are sending out a, a release every 6.83 days um uh, no small feat in 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 the government uh unlike the army's program this program is a little smaller. I, I think what we learned from some of the smaller programs that are in my portfolio, is it scalable? Can we do that business process re-engineering and make it scalable to a larger program, which is what we're working on now within my portfolio is to bring it to some of those larger programs and make it adaptable.
7: How much of that frequent code release is attributable to the fact that our days was built with the cloud in mind in the first place? Is it, I, I, I I got you that size is a factor there too, but, but that, that cloud native piece, how much did that help?
0: I think the cloud native piece helped, but we did have challenges in, in terms of culture um, and, and getting people in the mindset to see why, you know, going to that cloud native solution uh, was important. Specifically some of the, some of the technical challenges we had were um uh, we saw today when when i when i tried to use my 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 nmci machine to come on uh to this interview uh bandwidth bandwidth issues and and moving to a cloud was definitely a challenge for us today it's not an issue with with some services like like aws snowball um but but schedule issues um he mentioned that earlier um we're a little bit different as we are a defense uh, business system and so we're currently in my portfolio using the adaptive framework and the swap process to move these software delivery um, pathways through faster through the acquisition process. But, but I, I, I feel his pain and, and some of my, my other programs in terms of how acquisition, our acquisition process, does not meet what we need to do to be adaptive and, and modernized.
1: Christine Lemaire, the program manager for Naval Applications and Business Services. You also heard from Rob Porter, the acting product director for the Army's General Fund Enterprise Business System. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Hear more at the 2023 DOD Cloud Exchange at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.